Welcome to the Demystifying Diversity podcast, where each week we explore topics related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, and I'm speaking to you today from the stolen Lenape lands known as Philadelphia. And I'm Zach James, also occupying stolen Lenape lands. And I am Azaria Keys. I am also occupying Lenape land. This is the final Q&A episode of this third season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. So thank you to those of us who have been listening all season and for the last couple of seasons as well. Today, we're going to be sharing about last week's episode, Expanding Beyond the Workplace, Creating a Better World. And we're also going to be sharing some of our season takeaways as we prepare for an extended season break. Yeah, dear Elise, it's been 12 main episodes and 12 QAs and an introduction episode. I learned a lot. I hope listeners have too. And we've been getting some great feedback. And I loved how this past episode brought some of the DEI issues from the workplace into our overall lives. Indeed, I thought it was an interesting framework to consider the human hierarchy of needs and how essential it is for all of us to be invested in bringing about basic need fulfillment for all people and elevating our abilities to give back by leveraging our privilege for others. Uh, I had a bunch of takeaways from this episode, but Azario, what were some of yours? There was one specific quote that just I felt could sum it all up, and that was from Chair Burroughs when she said, there's no one here who's not connected in a thousand different ways to everyone else. And the power in that is that sometimes I think all of the episodes we covered this season, the topics we covered, they can feel very specific to one group, right? But when you step back and say, at the core of this, we are all humans who have basic needs. Those basic needs alone connect us in a way that nothing else can really have that impact on us. So I think sometimes we overcomplicate trying to solve some of these issues. And it's funny because the previous episode I was talking about in DEI work, we can't just boil it down to humanity. But personally, I do believe that's a large part of it. But I still think that the conversation around just having humanity is is very important to solving a lot of these issues we have. And we've said it multiple times throughout the season, but it's hard to hate up close. And it's hard to, when you really search for answers instead of just staying in your comfort zone, it's hard to stay in the same mindset. And so I, I really just felt like Chair Burroughs' comment, it's really that simple, but I know it's also not. That we are all humans at the end of the day, and we, I think, can find ways to connect more than we sometimes do. What about you, Zach? Yes, like I said, there were a lot of good takeaways. First off, I need to meet Damon West. I loved mm-hmm. a lot of what he was was saying and doing. From some of the stuff he was saying, he's like me. He lays it out very, very simple. He said, at its core, all people want is to belong and be loved, which is is very, very true. He also mentioned about, I think his term was keeping your side of the street clean. Control what you can control. You can control what you think, what you say, what you feel, and what you do. And if you just focus on those things, like I said, you can keep your side of the street clean. It's hard to make someone else think something or say something, feel something, but you can definitely take care of, of your own house, as they say. And even in relating to that, Deb Attella was mentioning finding time to enjoy your passions, to balance out your, your work life, that whole self-care element. I think that came through a lot in this episode, which I underestimated the importance of that until really recently and learning more about it through doing workshops with, with Dara Lee's. So yeah, a lot, a lot of awesome stuff in this episode. I'm glad we closed out with the big one. 
For me, everything that the two of you just shared really resonated. Something else that was really impactful was Travel Anderson speaking about making it to the promised land and how if those coming up behind them made it, that they will have made it already and how they conceive of equity and inclusion as long-term initiatives that we should be working for on behalf of our communities, knowing we might never see what we're hoping to create. I think there's a quote out there that says, we might never see the trees that grow from the seeds that we plant. I just found that perspective really beautiful, this idea of working on behalf of those coming up behind and this generational investment. Yeah. Did either of you have a specific quote, Azaria, I know you mentioned one, but like a specific quote or story that stood out for you, not necessarily as like a takeaway or a lesson, but it's just something that this really resonated with me. And I'm going to be thinking about this. One that resonated with me was short and sweet, but Tamar mentioned about the pressure to to always be on go, to constantly be going and in motion and, and doing a lot. And and that's me, 100%. I do too much. When, when folks even ask me what I do for a living, I tell them I do too much. And then I explain <laughs> all the different things. But Tamar mentioned that you had to stop and remind yourself to slow down, which when I do that, I find myself at peace. I find myself feeling much better just as as a person in general when I do take the time to not go, go, go. Again, it's one of those things where it seems simple, but you need to hear it and practice it. It's one of those things where like, I'll forget that two days from now, three days from now, I almost want to tattooed on me like, hey, take your time. Yes. So much happens that you forget you haven't really taken your time in a while. But then when you center yourself and you do, a lot of relief comes with that. Yeah. For me, another quote or moment that stood out was when Deb had said that with the people she works with, the common theme is that none of them feel worthy. And it really made me stop and think about in the work that we do, in the times in which we're in, I wonder how many people who are in power, or even if you're not in power, but you are perpetuating hate or bias or whatever it might be, How much of that is really a projection of how we feel about ourselves and how those individuals feel about themselves? And that's not to say that it's okay that they're doing what they're doing. It's absolutely not. But it almost brings me a little bit of comfort to know that people who, that kind of sounds messed up, but people who put so much hate into the world, it's really coming from a place of brokenness and not feeling worthy and not feeling loved or like they belong in their own lives. And while I don't think we can cure that in every single person who's putting hate into this world, I do think that there are some people who are really just unknowingly putting hate into this world because they don't understand the power of them perpetuating their own self-hate onto others. And if we can reach some of those people who I think at the core really want to do right by others, but they are ignorant to certain topics, they just don't know better or they do know better, but they don't have enough people around them encouraging them to do better, whatever it might be. I think if we can target those people and reach the humanity in them, but then also I encourage those people to, if if by chance they are listening to this podcast, they might not be, but I encourage them to really pursue self-care and self-love because it changes how we treat others when we care about ourselves. And so that's why with this episode, I really appreciated the time we spent talking to people about how they take care of themselves and, and pour into themselves because how we are on the inside is reflected 
on the outside and how we treat others. And I'm a firm believer of that. So just that reminder that we got to work on the inside before we can expect anyone on the outside to change what they're doing. It's well, what are we doing and how do we love ourselves or don't love ourselves? I think that that is such an important point that you make. And it also does make me think like in terms of pouring into ourselves, I think there's a really healthy way to do that and perhaps like a destructive or Mm. self-indulgent way to do that. And one of the things that I think a lot about is the concept of American individualism and how I really believe that the insistence on striving for what we want as individuals when it's done excessively can really keep people quite unhappy. And so I think a lot about how we can balance working towards our own goals, needs and aspirations with giving back and being part of our larger communities. And so I'm just wondering how each of you find that juggle and that navigation of the individual versus the collective and how we can maybe be thinking about that as people as we move forward. This conversation around individualism versus collectivism is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. I'm in grad school and we discuss in our classes quite often. But I think that there is a way to pour into yourself while still prioritizing a more collective approach. And the way I think that can be done is when you pour into yourself, you lean on other people while doing so. And then you allow other people to lean on you while they're pouring into themselves. And when you lean on other people, that often includes taking advice from others, learning from their life lessons. Over time, that creates a sense of community so that While you can say that you poured into yourself, I'm someone who constantly believes I pour into myself and that is why I am who I am today, why I am where I'm at today. But I cannot go without saying that while pouring into myself, I also had others that I allowed to pour into me. I had others who I poured into during that time. So I still poured into myself, but my village was simultaneously pouring into me. So the the two don't have to exist exclusively, but we have to let others in and we have to be there for others. And that can show up in terms of giving back. But I think that that is something that when I hear giving back, I think of going and volunteering and things like that. And I think certainly that is a part of it, but it is also just as simple as letting people be there for you and being there for others in your life, in your community and expanding that beyond just even your your circle of family and friends like letting strangers show up and and opening your mind and I'll have any given day where I'm walking down the street and someone compliments me or smiles and that added benefit to my day and I can never look back on that day and say oh I had a great day just because I I made it that way actually no I had a great day because some great person was kind to me and and that's collectivism it's letting others show up in your space in a way that benefits you and then doing the same for them so it doesn't have to be this grand act of giving back if that's how you're viewing it it can be as simple as just being human with other humans interesting i have a very unique perspective i think towards this because i am notoriously terrible at putting myself first I only think of community and others first, and I've made myself view that as a form of helping myself. I give back, whether we talk about in a philanthropic way or providing my time at no cost to folks, not even thinking there should be a cost, but I'm always very much thinking about others, wanting to do for others. And I've felt that that's enriched me individually. So I don't really have to think about 
myself as much. As long as I'm taking care of other people, it comes back to me. The one way I found out that that doesn't work is specifically tied to my health. I've let myself get very unhealthy over the years to the point where now I'm I'm trying to drop 100 pounds in, in six months because I never really cared to work out for myself. My excuse would be that time could be more valuable spent helping this person grow their business or providing this this service for a client. So I had to have that mental shift lately, which is good. I, I wish I had it earlier. And I encourage all folks to to live for yourself, especially when it comes to health, especially when it comes to mental health. I've been blessed in some cases where I have a very high mental fortitude to get through things that usually for a lot of folks, it would have them go into a shell or be depressed or certain things like that. So I, I think I'm built weird. We're all individuals and we all have our, our ways of of coping and, and moving forward. Mine's just always been very communal off the bat. And I don't know if I can say that I was raised that way, if that's just like a switch that happened in, internally. But I have found that more often than not, it comes back and makes me feel good to be in that space. So I don't really think about it individually for myself. I just try to reap the benefits of, of being more communal and, and seeing how that turns out. You know, what's really interesting about you sharing that and thank you for being vulnerable. One of the things I think about Zach is when you embarked on your health journey that you're on right now. I think part of the way that you got into training was working with someone because you wanted to do marketing for him, right? And it was like an even exchange. So I feel like even in your efforts to put yourself first, you can't help yourself from leveraging your skills, your assets, your resources on behalf of others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And genuinely wanting to help them do better. It came about with that individual because I was like, there's improvements I see. So Let's start that conversation. And, and yeah, now I think about it, that definitely was the, the crux of the health <laughs> journey. How do, I, how do I help someone else grow and improve while also helping myself? But I think about this, I mean, I use the terminology giving back, but whether we talk about it as like giving back or contributing to our communities or just being a person in relationship with other people, however we frame it. One of the things I think about is should we be engaging and giving back to our own communities? Should we be giving back to like communities of which we're not a part? Is practicing philanthropy or supporting and uplifting others something that we should be doing on an overall level or in a more nuclear, more contained way? I personally feel like you have to give back to your community. It's the community that is there for you. So, and it's truly an extension of you. So I think that giving back to your community makes the most sense in my mind. But then like on a larger scale, I'm also just like giving back at all is important. So if you're someone who feels like that's in your personal community, or if you feel more driven to do it on a global scale in a different community, just give back because we're all connected somehow. So if you're helping a single person be it someone in your community or outside of your community, well, there will be a domino effect of how you've helped that person. So eventually it spreads beyond any of our communities, our, our personal communities. So for me, I do think that giving back to your community, it's, and I guess whatever you're defining as community, I'm thinking of like my neighborhood and my close circle of family and friends. Giving back to them is important to me because I have to go and live in that neighborhood. I have to call these people my friends and family. And so why would I not want to pour into that? But I also like going into communities that I am not a part of and 
giving back there because it just expands the reach of philanthropy and humanity beyond my own personal bubble. That's my thought on that. Yeah. And I I think you're spot on. I mean, giving back in general is a win. You should be Mm -hmm. doing that regardless. And for me, I know we've mentioned it before, probably in a few episodes, but you got to start where you're at. And from that perspective, I think giving back to your community is where most folks can start and, and start quickly. You have the most familiarity. There's likely others in your community that might want to aid you in giving back. It's always easier to give back when there's other people giving back right alongside you. And you do that to the level of your capability. If you get to the point where you can help multiple communities, even communities that aren't your own, I support that 100%. But that might not be the easiest way to get going, especially if you're new to giving back. Again, whether it be with your time, your your money, your effort, whatever that method of giving back is, I think more often than not, it does start communal. But as you do it more and more, and as your your resources and capabilities grow, I think it makes sense to expand to other communities. And for whatever reason you choose the, these other groups, it's just always beneficial when you're you're helping others. I would say I wholeheartedly agree with that. I think it's super important to start where we are. I also feel like for those people that have a significant amount of privilege or social capital that they can leverage, I feel like the, for those people, it's incumbent upon them to maybe give back to communities of which they're not a part, or or I would hope that they would give back to communities of which they're not a part. Because I think that one thing that can happen is if people are giving back to those who are at the same, let's say, like socioeconomic level as themselves or whatever, I think it can sometimes lead to like nepotism. So I feel very strongly that people in marginalized communities should be giving back to their own communities for sure and starting there and supporting one another. Those who have perhaps greater access to resources, financial, social, job resources, I think it is important for them to to broaden their horizons beyond the people that they might interact with on a regular basis, because I think that's why we have such stark disparities in terms of what people have access to. These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti-aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out, and I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. 
Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com slash pages slash diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real-world local and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce. With options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate, certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu slash ddp to learn more. As we look back on this season and just all that we've spoken about in terms of DEI in the workplace and beyond, was there anything that you two would have wanted to explore that we didn't get to speak about, whether in the last episode or, or in the in the season? I'm going to answer that from a place of gratitude that we dedicated an entire season to the topics that we did to begin with. So no, to answer your question, I think that we just highlighted the tip of the iceberg and there is always more that we can talk about. I mean, we asked that question at the end of every episode as well. So I've, I've given response to the specific topics we've covered where I think that there are ways that we can continue to explore those areas specifically in in a deeper manner. But in terms of the entire season, I think that I'm so grateful that we devoted a season specifically to DEI in the workplace and not just the high level, typical topics you hear about in DEI. But I think we really dug deeper and went into some conversations. Like I love that we covered an, an episode on parenthood and being an employee and a parent in the workplace, because when I think of DEI, that's not a topic that I ever really hear about in DEI discussions. And I love that we devoted an episode to um, invisible and visible disabilities and neurodivergency. So I am grateful that we as a team have started conversations that you don't otherwise typically hear on a mainstream level and especially on a podcast that has such a far reach. I think that this, like, how could I feel like there's anything that we didn't? Although, Zach, if you feel that way, I'm not saying anything, (laughs) but yeah. (laughs) I think that was great to hear. Uh, I do feel 
very similar to you. I think we've covered some amazing topics, topics that I really didn't have much of any knowledge on that I now know a lot about. I'm proud that I think this is going to be a far reaching and I'm speaking reaching from both how many folks it can impact, but also for how long it will impact folks. I think this will be a resource for people to use for years to come on these topics. So I'm I'm super excited to see these episodes continue to get listens as the months roll on. I was trying to really think hard of if there was any topic we could have expanded on or gone deeper on, what would it be? And and the only thing I could come up with, because I know we did touch on it, is some of these DEI, AB elements and how it relates to entrepreneurs, specifically solopreneurs, those who are like myself, who have their own business, don't have any governing bodies that there can be friction with. It all is internal and and how they navigate or appear in the professional space. Because even though we are solopreneurs, we are constantly networking and building relationships and Sometimes situations arise that I think the benefit of of having a deep knowledge of DEI AB would be helpful. And I think a lot of entrepreneurs, especially solopreneurs, sometimes think, well, it doesn't matter as much to them because they don't have that dynamic of working with others like coworkers or bosses or employees. So that that's the only thing I could try to say. Hey, I, I wish we could go deeper into that just for personal reasons, of course. So episodes similar to like the success episode where we touched on entrepreneurship a lot. I I think we did a great job of representing the mindset of folks who are running their own business and could gain the knowledge from these episodes that that can help them as well. But yeah, I I think we did a great job this year covering all the topics that need to get covered. and, And I'm super excited to see these continue to get listened to. So yeah, how about you, Darylise? What are your thoughts? I really appreciate that the two of you went first with your answers on that, because I think I tend to be someone who's like always looking to the next thing or never quite feel things are enough. And I'm working on that for sure. And so I want to just echo the gratitude. I want to echo the depth and the weight and the breadth of this season and previous seasons as well. But yeah, I mean, there's so much more that I want to do. And I think that's perhaps for me, the thing that keeps this work fresh and keeps this work going. So I'm not going to say exactly what topics I want to cover, because I think we can save that as a surprise. But yeah, there's a lot more that I would want to go into. And I just want to really shout out all of the guests from this season, because I learned so much with each interview. And for me, each interview makes me just more and more curious to explore things from different perspectives, to really learn more, to bring things to our audience. And I really appreciate it too, the listeners' questions and their hunger for more. And I I just really want to be able to deliver for them so that we can make the work as impactful as possible and really be sure that we're serving our community. So I think there's a lot more that I want to do in subsequent seasons, but I I feel okay about where we ended. I feel like we really gave people things to think about and gave ourselves a really great platform for some deeper exploration as we move forward. So I think now would be a great time to move into our expert interview session of the Q&A episode. In this interview, I had the opportunity to speak with Drew Almond. Dr. Almond is a Philadelphia resident and citizen of the Upper Mattapanai Indian tribe in King William, Virginia. In 2022, he became a project director for the Virginia Tribal Education Consortium, VTEC, the official tribal education agency representing and jointly serving all seven of the Commonwealth's federally recognized tribes. 
In his role, he oversees the Native Youth Community Project, which uses federal grant funds to provide college and career preparation for Indigenous students. Before his work with VTEC, he spent more than a decade as a faculty member at Temple University, specializing in professional skills development courses for bachelor's and master's students and consulting on assurance of learning initiatives for various programs. During this time, Drew also became a faculty fellow for the University Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, also known as Sedwick, and served on the Fox School of Business's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Council. He completed a doctorate in educational leadership in 2020. So we'll play the clip of my interview with Drew, and then Zach and his area, you and I will come back and discuss it. Demystify diversity, making work safe for you and me. Shoulder to shoulder, we embark. Invite the light to send the dark. Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? I kind of have that confluence of an industry that I'm passionate about, but also there's a cultural aspect to it and also a familial aspect to it. And I said this in the interview when I first interviewed with VTech, which is the Virginia Tribal Education Consortium, that even if I don't get the job I'm interviewing for right now, I'm hoping to keep a relationship open because I will volunteer. And I'm happy that they're paying me because I do have bills and things, but I would have been willing to to volunteer even if they hadn't because I'm invested in so many different ways. Well, and it's a relatively recent career transition for you. So what inspired that move? It was a combination of wanting a new challenge, maybe feeling like I had reached sort of a a ceiling of sorts in in a, a career that I had done for over a decade wanting to try something new after teaching the same courses, doing the same work for a long time. And then obviously we all went through a lot with the COVID-19 pandemic and probably that led to a lot of people reflecting on their circumstances and their choices. At least I can only speak for myself. I know that was the case for me and not to get terribly personal, but I also experienced during, I guess it was 2021, unexpected death of my brother who, like me, we grew up together with same mom, same dad, mixed race, half white, half indigenous. And we had like a a relationship that only we understood because of that. We were in the same exact circumstances near the same age. And I think in a way, not unlike, and I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Michael Jordan, but this is a classic example of when Michael Jordan's father died unexpectedly, the greatest basketball player in the world decided to quit and try baseball because it was his dad's favorite sport. I do think there's a little bit of that influencing why I'm so passionate and why now is because this was something that meant a lot in my relationship with my brother. Thank you so much for sharing about that. And I do feel like the personal does really impact the professional and vice versa. Who we are professionally has an impact on our personal lives. And I guess I want to ask too, you spoke about yourself when you were younger and growing up, and I know now you're working with 
youth with like young people is a, is a big part of your job and your orientation. And can you talk about why that is so meaningful for you or why working with future generations, how that impact might be felt? We want people to be lifelong learners, a good thing, but there's obviously certain infrastructure that enables us to gain more traction in the way of teaching and learning when the the target demographic are are young people. They don't have jobs for the most part. They are malleable cognitively. I think they call that neuroplasticity might be the word for that, where they're more able to learn things. And I think that with education in the same way that I know people who work in social workers or marriage and family therapists and I've often thought that working with children as your clients in a field like that would be the most difficult because you'd encounter sad circumstances. But many people in those positions have told me that those are the most rewarding clients because you can actually see change happen. You can actually, there's an opportunity for you to change someone's life and their circumstances that they can grow into in the future because there is that hope springs eternal potential with young people. I love that you brought up young people and the people who do work that might be, because I, like you, would think that work would be incredibly challenging. And for one of the reasons that we talked about a little bit in this latest podcast episode, we were talking about having our basic needs met and how when people's basic needs met, it allows for a foundation of growth and evolution and for them to pursue other things, avenues of exploration, right? Like when their food and shelter needs are, are, are taken care of, maybe they can pursue a hobby or a sport or an interest or get back in their communities. And I just wonder, I don't know that that's always true for young people, because I think young people can do some amazing things even when their needs are at risk. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic. I agree with you. Yeah, I think there's a a truth to that, that you have to satisfy the things that are going to maintain your livability and your sustainability before you can start doing things for other people. In the case of kids, they by nature often do have a lot of flexible time and they can take on these additional character building experiences. Sometimes though, because of their circumstances, they don't have access to some of those experiences. And I find that That's where programs like the grant-funded project that I'm working on and a few others within the the tribal consortium, we have a a very particular demographic that we're targeting, and we have very specific services that we can offer them, and all of them are intended to, for lack of a better word, correct for this historically marginalized people to to catch up in some ways, to gain access to, to things that maybe they wouldn't have had access to And I think that equity building piece is incredibly important. We talk so much about that on the podcast. One thing though, Drew, that came up in my pre-interview with you was the idea that service itself can sometimes be a privilege. And I just never had really considered that, but I, I would love for you to speak a little bit about that, about this idea that giving back and, and being of service to those around us and to our communities can in some ways be inextricably linked to privilege and influence. To go back to this idea of meeting your own needs first and then after, and and I guess I shouldn't say after because that's presumptive that you can meet your own needs, but if you can, then that frees up bandwidth 
whatever you call it, time, energy, opportunity, financial means to take on other things that are additional. And I think about this a couple of different ways. I can't remember our exact conversation. I'm thinking two things. One is I think a lot about, and I have I have no research into this. It's just a thought experiment type of idea, but who first invented dessert, realizing that they had enough food and nutrients to sustain themselves and then said, I'm just going to have a, a meal for fun that's just serving no practical purpose. It's just enjoyment. That's a pure privilege to be able to have that dessert availability. And it could be food, it could be time, it could be money. When we're talking about modern society and, and privilege and things like that, the people who have an excess of those resources then should be at best position to do extra service. I also think about myself and I really take an amount of joy in service that I think that many people do or would if, if they found the right kind of service that felt fulfilling to them or, or that it's something where they could see change within a cause or a population and really feel invested in that. I know it's, it's probably harder for, for some people, depending on where you live or what your background is, to find that cause. But service, the ability to give back to people, it is a privilege. I feel privileged that I'm able to have, again, they're paying me to do something that I would already find rewarding and that I'm already personally invested in. So yeah, I, I think that's a tremendous privilege that I, I don't take lightly. I love that you brought in the element because I, I do think that sometimes people feel like service or giving back or supporting others is a chore. Nobody wants to do chores. So I love that you brought in the element that like it can actually be joyful. It can actually be enriching. In fact, I think sustainable service really is naturally. It becomes its own reward. But I will say this is maybe just my own personal observations, but I feel like sometimes those who are in a position to give the most are not those who do give the most. And I don't know exactly why that is, but I feel like it's important to point out that even though those with the most privilege might have the most disposable resources in terms of time, money, et cetera, those are not necessarily the people who give with the most generous of hearts. I don't have the data on this, but I assume you're you're probably largely right on that anecdotally. If you think about the word philanthropy, it literally means philo. I think this is these are Greek root words. Philo means love and anthro means humanity. So philanthropy is love of humanity. As a word, engaging in philanthropy is an indication of it should be an indication of how broad and inclusive that love for humanity is. I don't know that everybody has that broad spectrum love of humanity. And I'm not thinking of particular people or anything like that. It's just how could you have endless resources and not give back unless you really are mostly self-interested or, or most interested in self-preservation rather than raising others up. Well, it's interesting that you would bring that up. There's a quote that is something of the nature of we are most uniquely positioned to help those who are versions of ourselves that we once were. This idea that I think that love for humanity often comes based on 
uplifting those who were in a position that we were in previously and knowing how important it was to have allies from that space. But I think that 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 idea in some ways can support things like nepotism and white supremacy, et cetera. So it's like this weird thing of how do you get people to really deeply care about supporting others in this world, knowing that sometimes those who can't see beyond the false boundaries of diversity can't see the shared humanity in all of us. Things are more insular. So, I mean, I don't have any answers. I'm not even sure that was a clear question, but these are the things I stay up thinking about at night. You're right. And I think the last time we talked, I think I mentioned that the idea of a state law as being a a mechanism for diffusing some of this long-held generational wealth that gets passed down. I don't know that that's doing as good of a job if if that's what it aims to do, which is my understanding. But yeah, I think we all realize that, I shouldn't say we all realize, but you and I realize that you have this closed circuit of wealth that's just staying within within its own channel and not ever bringing in others or raising up others or helping set up others then you really just end up with this concentrated self-inclusive or exclusive, I guess I should say, contingent of of humanity and and everyone else is excluded. They're marginalized by nature. And as we're working to make things more inclusive and more equitable, what are some of the ways that we can quantify impact? What are some of the breadcrumbs that are left behind that let us know, okay, this is headed in the right direction, or this is headed in the wrong direction? I would love it if I was further along in my my new line of work where I could give a a really robust, backward-looking expert response to that. I can tell you that the grant project that I'm directing currently is a five-year project. Uh, It's called the Native Youth Community Project. So we provide access to college and career preparation resources for high school students who are members of the seven federally recognized tribes of Virginia. So we're collecting a lot of data. We just started the the project in October 1st, 2022 was the the start of the project and it's a five-year project. So there's an opportunity to collect longitudinal data in such a way where we can make the project itself replicable, or or at least give advice to future similar projects on what worked and what didn't work. And we're trying to keep track of as much information as we can. And we're we're figuring out as we go along, what kinds of things are, I guess, just the best way to collect that information and, and what's the best ways to use it. Well, and I appreciate you sharing that you're working with youth from the seven federally recognized tribes in Virginia. And I I wonder how important the specificity of that project and land and legacy are, because I wonder how much things can be adapted or modified or changed from place to place, and then how important the geographical location is to a project. I think in terms of geography, I don't think maybe it doesn't directly answer your question, but there's a natural diaspora effect with East Coast-based indigenous tribes. Many of them were forcefully relocated. Others forced the, the option of either 
assimilating or living on the fringes or, or leaving. The reason I'm in Pennsylvania and why I grew up here is because there's a whole contingent of, of people from the upper Mattapani tribe that just found better opportunities not in Virginia. During, there's a whole history of what they call paper genocide tactics by the government there to erase culture, cultural identity in, in the, the record. So that, that's been a challenge that we've faced is the lack of a centralized space. This is not uncommon in this community. And it's something that within the United States, I, I don't know if people are necessarily aware of. And that's one of the reasons why I think we might talk about land or, or territorial acknowledgement the last time we spoke. And to me, there's, I think, two sides to this. I'm in favor of a, a thoughtful, well-considered, well-intentioned and good faith territorial or land acknowledgement. It requires work and it requires careful interrogation, but it can be beneficial not just for full-throatedly acknowledging the people who are displaced, even if they were displaced many years before you took that space. But in that moment, when you hear that, you should be reflecting on your role in that space and how you can affect what happens from here on here forward within the, the space that you're, you're occupying especially if that space is, is you're part of some kind of large institution that has a major imprint on a, a geographic community. Thank you for pointing out the twofold importance of those moments of acknowledgement, right? That like, it's not just about the other or about this thing that happened in the past, but it is really an invitation for whoever is occupying a space to look at their role and their relationship within that dynamic and within the systems that support suppression. So yeah, I mean, I think it is very, very important for people to be mindful and thoughtful about their engagement with communities that are their own communities and that are not their own communities. And you mentioned institutionalization, and I'm so curious. I mean, this season we've been talking about work, DEI at work, and all these various factors. And I guess what I'm curious about is I know you come from academia, and what is it like to work within a system that is highly institutionalized, let's say, right? And then moving to a system that is perhaps more grassroots, more community-led, community-focused. And I'm not saying that educational institutions aren't focused on their communities, but there's a whole system to academia that may not be in place, a whole infrastructure that's not necessarily in place when one is doing community-based engagement work. It's interesting because in, in theory, it's the same broad industry of the education industry. You could even say they're both nonprofit industry educational but they couldn't be more different in terms of the sort of structure at VTAC we're an extremely scrappy upstart nonprofit what's called a tribal education agency which in and of itself is not something that a lot of our partner companies necessarily know how to deal with they're used to for instance well actually I won't name the the company but what we're working with very closely with a company to provide certain standardized testing, test prep, career certification type of products. And this company built to work with school districts or specific schools and we're neither. We work with 
students who might live anywhere in the Commonwealth of Virginia or anywhere in the United States, as long as they're a member of these tribes, because like, like I talked about before, there's a natural spreading of, of people. And in some ways, like I was thinking about this today, it's maybe a little bit like birthright in Israel in, to some extent, where you're trying to find people who are descended from your people and you're showing them the culture. I've never been on birthright. I only know about it through friends who have gone. So I don't know if that's accurate at all. But I think the impetus for starting VTAC was these seven tribes got federal recognition in 2018, which took really a really long time to get in general. And it was a lot of work. And when that happens, it turns on the, the federal funding process to an extent. And then there's opportunities to apply for grants. There's opportunities to gain. And I, I shouldn't say turns on the, the funding process. That sounds like there's just everyone swimming in money. That's not the case. It's just you're you're entitled to certain resources because you're, I think what they call a dependent domestic nation, I think is politically the term. So basically you're treated like a state is how I understand it. So if states have certain federal resources for healthcare, for instance, or for education, tribe, federally recognized tribes are, are entitled to similar resources from the government. I think one of the things that I, I'm loving about my new job, and not to besmirch any, any previous specific employers that I've had, but I don't feel locked in. I feel like if I have an ambition to take on an activity and I have an idea for how to do it, generally, I'm allowed to try that. I have the support and I, I have the trust of the people that I work with to try those things out. And largely, it's gone pretty well. Sometimes we have to course correct. but it's been really, really rewarding in that way. Whereas I've had previous jobs where I felt almost just like a cog in a machine and it's, this is the thing you do. Why are you trying to do something that is ambitious or above or outside of, of that well-defined job description? I love that. And I so relate to the joys that come from being able to fall forward and be experimental and figure things out and have a system that is set up to be supportive of exploration and curiosity and innovation. And speaking of curiosity, something that I love, that's the favorite part for me of these interview sessions are that our listeners call in and they write in with questions for our experts that I could never think of that I think really enrich the experience. So Drew, I would love to play Spencer's question and then answer that. And then I will ask you some of our written listener questions. Hi, my name is Spencer. I'm calling in from Los Angeles, California. Uh, I've just got a question that's been on my mind and I figured I'd, I'd ask it here. In a society where it feels like so much is said on social media, but not a lot of actual action is taken in reality, how can I help others facilitate the actual change that they claim they want to see? I just think it's a good question and uh, thanks a lot. I almost want to separate the social media part of it because I think it's not mutually exclusive. I don't think that social media is necessarily stopping people from facilitating the change they want to see. I think the subtext, if I'm interpreting it correctly, is social media can sometimes feel like a faux form of action or engagement, and it can be a, a form of virtue signaling. I don't always think that's a net negative, and I don't think it precludes anybody from actually doing work. But to get to the second part of the question, 
I would say you can model the behavior that you want to see, to, you want to facilitate in others. I'm thinking of a, a good friend of mine who lives in my neighborhood, and we live in, in I live in Philadelphia, and we have, a, I think, a lot to be desired in terms of like street cleanliness sometimes. I don't know if you agree. It's really not good. I've had friends from Europe come here and be like, what is going on here? It looks like a hurricane came through a week ago. So during the everything lockdown period of, of COVID, my one friend started just picking up trash on the street, like getting all the different equipment, like the, the grabber and the, the movable bucket, and would just do that around the neighborhood. And when I realized she was doing that, I was like, I should do that too. I can't just ignore my block because now I'm noticing all of the garbage more so than I normally would. So I started doing that too. And I'm not going to pretend like suddenly everybody in Philadelphia was picking up their garbage, but just seeing a friend model behavior that was something that dovetailed with an interest that I have, which is keeping my local area clean and environmentally sound, safe, whatever, I was impulsed in a way into joining. I love that illustration because it really points to the fact that seemingly small things can actually make a big difference and can inspire other people to do their own seemingly small things, which then have a cumulative effect over time. And and I am grateful, Spencer, too, for the question. I think it's an important one. And it's interesting because Spencer asked about social media and Jenna actually wrote in with a question. And I'll read that to you, Drew. Jenna writes, I feel like in this time of social media and constant internet, people are less invested in each other. How do we get them to see each other as people and engage in meaningful ways? That is quite a similar question, isn't it? Yeah, it um, is. It is. Yeah. It even has the same framing of the in this time of social media. So I'll try to not answer in the same way, but can't really make people do anything. So how do we get them to see each other as people? So in addition to modeling the behavior is to not not perpetuate the behavior that you you don't want. So Maybe you put the phone down more. Maybe you plan events that you invite others to, even if it's something simple like let's do a neighborhood cleanup, but just to use a really simple example that maybe we can all relate to or engage in. I think people sometimes just need, need a little nudge to do things. And if they're doing it with other people, then it's suddenly a social thing and you're sharing that experience. And the, the rewards are not just the direct cause that you're focused on, which is the garbage or the trash or the environment, but also the rewards are, are social in a way. And that in some ways makes things more sustainable because then you have other people that you can plan these things with again. And there's almost a social, not pressure, but influence to want to do these sorts of things again or hold each other accountable to do them again. And you can make a whole ritual of it. Maybe you go out for cheeseburgers and milkshakes afterwards because you did such a nice job. Yeah, I, I don't I don't see the social media thing as a direct indirect conflict, but I think I'm understanding the, the point that these listeners are, are making. I love that you're pointing to the fact that these systems 
aren't necessarily static. I don't think we necessarily have to live within systems that are problematic for us, right? So like if someone is finding, and there's a whole lot of data that shows that social media can make people feel less socially connected, right? And less engaged and kind of less lit up by life. And I think that sometimes the answer to that Maybe to try to change the system of social media, but but maybe a more immediate way to deal with it is to not remain within that system in the same way and to disengage and then to engage with those around us or those in different neighborhoods and communities. I mean, I think one of the values of social media is that it allows people to see outside their own little bubbles, but many people don't do that, right? They're just on social media, like following people with their same interests and hobbies and passions. And and that's fine. But I, I think sometimes it can lead to a feeling like we're in a silo or like I'm comparing my real life to someone else's highlight reel. And it can leave people feeling very lonely and isolated. So I love that the kind of counterbalances that you gave were very engaged in everyday activities and in their communities. Yeah. And I I also, I I don't think picking up trash is the only way to do that. I think there's probably schools nearby where you live that could use volunteers for after school programs or mentoring or tutoring, or there might be rec centers that could use similar volunteer work or a park where there, there are certain things that the people need. I think if you're thinking locally, we're programmed in such a way right now where we can travel anywhere in the world pretty quickly, but even more so we can look into the window of our, our phone or our computer and see all these different places and it can be overwhelming, but we're still just people, we're still just organisms living in our, our own local ecosystem. I don't think we should be overlooking that. So Tom from New York writes in with a question. Tom says, what if someone's needs are met, but they don't feel like they are? It seems like in the U.S. we're all hungry for more, often to the detriment of ourselves and society. So Drew, if someone's needs are met, but they don't feel like they are, how do they work with that? I think there's been a lot of study on this, and I I am certainly not someone who's done that, that original research on psychology. I've heard the term, the hedonic treadmill, I think that's how you would pronounce it. And it's this cycle of desire and then attainment and then getting used to that thing and then desiring more. And it just goes around. I don't know if that's a nature versus nurture thing. What I do know is that I've had certain times where I've been able to reflect on what I have, reflect on maybe what I didn't have before and realize how comfortable I am and how even if I do want more more money, more time off, whatever the case may be, more more responsibility, more anything, you can still look back and see how far you've come. And I know for me, maybe I'm I'm just a unique person in that I didn't ever really envision myself having all that much. So me having my own house in a city and a neighborhood that suits me and a job that I like, I feel really, really fortunate. And I think for me personally, I, I mentioned the, the COVID-19 pandemic before. That was a point where, and not unlike other points that, that might occur for people where they're forced into a situation of reflection, everyone was asking how everyone else is because it's a really tough time for the world. But being stuck in my house made me feel lucky that I like where I live and I like my house and that I can walk to so many things 
that I have a family who who cares about me that I could communicate with and try to plan things with, that I have friends that I can do similar things with within the, the boundaries of the situation. But just thinking about when people ask me how I am, I would always sort of respond, it could be much, much worse. I feel pretty fortunate. And I would hope that it doesn't take a tragedy or a global pandemic for people to feel that way. But I do think we should maybe build into our lives those little opportunities of reflection instead of always looking forward and always looking at more, but thinking about what we have now and what we what we had 10 years ago and, and think about maybe how fortunate and how far we've come and be kind to ourselves and, and applaud ourselves for the, the progress we've made up until this point. I have to say I'm a little bit envious, Drew, of your seemingly naturally grateful heart because I'm not I'm not wired that way. But I will say from my own perspective on Tom's question that I experienced a lot of very difficult things in my lifetime. And one of the things that's been really helpful is mentoring people who have been in situations like the situations that I've come out of. And somehow, I don't know, that's both helped me with acquiring some measure of self-love, but also helps me to be grateful that I'm not in those places anymore. But I don't know, sometimes I can't access it just for me within me. Like it's in the giving back that I'm able to, to muster up some gratitude, but you seem to come by it more naturally and more honestly than I do, Drew. So I really admire that actually. I would say therapy helps too. So that could that can help to help you to realize maybe some things that are you're having trouble realizing. So that's just a plug for a blanket plug for therapy. Yes, agree. Yes, there is no substitute for good therapy or or what you know. If people there's also like healing circles or spiritual development groups or coaching. I think it's really important that people be introspective and aware and building more inner capacity for self-care and kindness and empathy and all, all that really good stuff that allows us to be in healthy relationship with ourselves and with others. So we have a question from an anonymous listener who writes in and says, and I know Drew, you probably have not listened to every single episode of the podcast. You do not need to in order to answer this question, but this anonymous listener writes in and says, I love how you offer many suggestions about how to do more and be better, but I also get overwhelmed. So what's one thing to do, one place to start? So Drew, yeah, just for this anonymous listener, in your opinion, what's one place where they can start. I think we've danced around this a bit. I, I totally get the the sense of overwhelmingness. I experienced that with so many different things. Again, and this I think touches on the questions about the ever impactful presence of the internet and social media and that sort of thing. There's endless choices and that can cause a, a sense of paralysis because you're you're not acting, you're constantly so shopping for an opportunity that you never decide on. I think I mentioned earlier, acting locally is is something that maybe we do less of now in this hyper-globalized, immediate, internet-based world and society that we live in. We still have the, out, the, the world outside of our window where there's probably opportunities for you to engage in. And again, they can have different benefits for you beyond just the cause, but you can be helping the people that are in your immediate neighborhood and you can feel a sense of pride within your, your home space, which is probably something that would be good for people to, to 
experience. I know it makes me feel nice when I can do stuff like that. I'd also say you mentioned before thinking about experiences that you've had and maybe using that as a springboard or a, an avenue into a cause that you can be passionate and invested in, maybe see a little bit of yourself and other people. And there's that inherent empathy that can drive you in those situations. That's another way to get into a particular cause or, or service opportunity. So yeah, I would, I would think locally and I would think about experiences you've had or, or loved ones have had. And if there's ways that you can use those to give you a, a, an entry point. It's so interesting because this anonymous person wrote in with a question, wanting a place to start and wanting greater specificity. And then we have our last listener question is from Cherry who writes, I know the podcast is coming to an end for this season and I'd love more content. So what are some other resources you suggest for DEI engagement? And I will just say to Cherry that we have a resource page on the Demystifying Diversity podcast. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes and we've got three seasons of content. So we'll put links to that in the show notes. But Drew, for you, what are some resources that you suggest if people want to learn more about DEI engagement and what are some resources that you've learned a lot from? I see a lot of my role as being a way to to almost create awareness of indigenous causes and, and indigenous presence all throughout the United States, just because I often felt invisible with that part of my culture, living in a, in a major metropolitan city like Philadelphia. So I'll recommend a podcast called This Land, hosted by Rebecca Nagel, who is incredible. And there's two seasons. One is about a think it was a civil suit about the tribal lands of Oklahoma and broken treaties. And it was really interesting. It went to the Supreme Court, if I'm not mistaken. And then the second one is really current. It's about this law that enables Indigenous people to, to keep their, their children instead of there's a history of children being taken away from, from these communities. I'd say weirdly, but a lot of things are weird that you wouldn't expect to be challenged in the year 2023. But that's a law that's being chipped away at. So it's really important. It's things that you might not often hear about in your day-to-day life, especially if you don't know anyone who is affected by these, these issues. But if you want to be conscious of a culture that's literally all around you, but might not have the representation, that's a podcast that might introduce an interesting way in. This Land podcast, I can't wait to listen. We will put links to that in the show notes so that folks can go and learn more. And Cherry, thank you so much for the question. And Drew, for all of your answers and your time, is there anything that I didn't ask you or the listeners didn't ask you that you'd have wanted to share? So the one thing I was thinking about that I didn't get to earlier, it's come up a few times, but you mentioned the idea that people tend to see others like themselves and want to help those people. I don't think it even needs to be people who are exactly like you or have lived in your exact geographical area or come from your same socioeconomic background. I think just need to find that that way in that it gives you a bridge of empathy. And I was reading recently about a story that I had no idea about, but it's about the, the Choctaw Nation who are based in Oklahoma currently. They were displaced there uh, on the Trail of Tears. Right after they they completed that journey, which was a pretty terrible, terrible experience, they 
heard about or read about the Irish potato famine in Ireland and took it upon themselves to raise and send a bunch of money that they probably could have used on their own, but they saw a commonality in, in the, the plight of both groups. And they, they reached out and helped these people who they never saw, who lived, lived in a different country, who were being encroached upon by a, a different imperial force. And then years later, and I, I believe it was during COVID-19, when a lot of the indigenous communities were being ravaged by COVID and, and some of the, the side social and, and economic symptoms of, of COVID, the Irish, Irish groups raised money and sent it to the, the Choctaw to recompense. So the idea being these two cultures who see themselves as kindred spirits, even though they're very similar on paper, that commonality of, of what they went through creates sort of an impetus to help one another in times of need. Probably if we think hard enough and, and research, we can find other ways to help people who aren't exactly like us. I think also you're pointing to the importance of the amplification of voices and stories, right? And the importance of sharing and making things visible so that people can connect and see themselves and their stories in the experiences of others. And I think all of that is what allows us to connect on the basis of our shared humanity. 100%. So Drew, I would love if people are listening to this and they have more questions for you or want to get in contact with you and support the work that you're doing, how can they get in touch? How can they support you? The organization that I work for is called the Virginia Tribal Education Consortium. Our website is vtechinc.org. So that's V-T-E-C-I-N-C dot O-R-G. We are entirely funded through grants and donations. If people want to donate, that's great. If people just want to send us a note and say hello, they want to ask questions or or give suggestions, especially if there's people who are in the Commonwealth of Virginia and the education field, in the supporting education field or, or whatever, and they want to propose some kind of project or partnership. We're open to to hearing opportunities and and to hearing from from people in general. Well, thank you so much for that. We'll put a link also in the show notes so that people can just click that link and connect. Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can and should demand. Let's embrace one another single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each other through? I just have to say, I really feel like Drew is such a wealth of information and has such a dynamic and engaged mind. And I will say I've spoken to him subsequently for another project that I'm working on. And he just really is such a deep thinker. And I just really respect his ability to think deeply and critically about things from a whole array of perspectives. So what stood out to the two of you from what Drew shared and from our interview together? I think he echoed some of the things that we said earlier in this episode and past episodes when he was talking about where do you start and acting locally. I think that made a lot of sense even when we were talking about community and and giving back. I really think it's important to start where you're at and affect the people in the the space that's most closely around you and then expand from there, which it seemed Drew agreed with that, that concept. I agree. And I'll just add that I loved when Drew was speaking about 
just the fact that it doesn't always take some grand gesture. I mean, he saw his neighbor starting to pick up trash and it inspired him. And I I love that he talked about leading by example. And so that's something that I feel like we should always be challenging ourselves with is, okay, I understand that I want people in the world to function like this, but am I myself functioning like that? Am I functioning out of space of inclusivity, of kindness, of social activism, whatever it might be? And that was just a, a nice reminder of that. I think for me, one of the things that stood out is Drew brought an indigenous framework and perspective to the conversation and this idea that we've been exploring a bit just in this last episode and in this conversation today of self and society and how to move forward. And I think there's a ton of wisdom in a view and in a tradition and in a perspective that takes the long view. The seven generations principle is one that always stands out to me, this idea that we want to be looking seven generations ahead in terms of our impact and in terms of our way of seeing society and consider like stewardship of future generations and of land and all of these things. And I think for me, those insights really stood out as something that I want to be thinking about. And I want to be thinking about too, from the perspective of DEIAB work, how are the seeds that I'm planting going to support the continuation of this work and the deepening and the expansion and the growth. So that's just what I've been thinking about from my conversation with Drew. And I think about the seeds that I want to plant for the future. And just for each of you, based on the conversation with Drew, based on the conversation last week about moving beyond the workplace, what are some seeds that you all want to plant in terms of seeds of change for moving forward differently and and perhaps better? So one seed I want to plant, which I'm excited to do, is I'm going to be building my relationship with the high school I went to, where years ago when I went there, I was a president of the Black Student Union. The school currently has its first Black guidance counselor, and she's created some really awesome initiatives, one of which is a kente cloth ceremony where any of the African-American students, if they choose to, they can actually wear a kente cloth during graduation. And she does a ceremony where she'll be giving them their cloths. And she's asked me to come in and speak at this ceremony. So first off, I was thrilled and excited and I can't wait to do it. But I'm going to work with her to broaden the impact I can have at her school from a DEI perspective, not just, of course, for the African-American students there, but just in general, how can I provide some insights and plant some seeds at my school that I went to? in the DEI knowledge space. So basically volunteering some of the things and some of my time and things that I've learned doing this podcast and working with you, Darylise, to give back to to my school and, and the folks that live in, in my community here. I love that. For me, and this feels oversimplified, but it's really not, I want to sow the seed of love. I think that it's even challenging for me, having just said that, to really put love into this world sometimes because I'm so disappointed in humanity at times. <laughs> but it feels oversimplified. It feels cheesy and cliche. But I think the reality is, is that, as I've mentioned before, there is a lot of hate. There is a lot of willful ignorance in this world. And I can respond with strategy. I can respond with policy change. I can respond with all of that. But personally, I want to be known for someone who at my core responds out of a place of love. And I think that that is more challenging than it sounds. 
And so it's something I'm excited to do because it is a challenge for me. And I want my my future family and kids to know that I am someone who, even if I don't agree with someone's beliefs, if I'm sitting at a table with them, I can rely on a space of love for myself to navigate those difficult conversations because I I ultimately think that a huge part of this problem is that we don't love ourselves and one another enough. Absolutely. I appreciate both of you sharing that as area. I I see you as a source of love. So but <laughs> thank you. But, um, <laughs> but perhaps because we're also aligned in terms yeah. of views and values. Yeah. So I think it's easier to bring that forward. And Zach, I love what you shared about going back and giving back to your former school and that community and utilizing your knowledge base and your resources. Hey listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast, and I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, myself, Darylise, and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning. What's next for you on your DEI journeys? I know we talked about seeds, but do you all have things that are coming up in terms of that, areas that you want to work on, projects that you're doing that you're going to be doing moving forward after this? I plan to increase my knowledge. As you recall, between us producing season two and season three, I went and and did a certificate program at the University of South Florida virtually. I did not go down there. And I want to continue to do that. I want to expand my knowledge. I get so much knowledge of working with you, Darylise, and I want to continue to increase my knowledge from from other voices, from other standpoints, so I can better help my community and, and the folks that I work with. So that's the next thing for me. Now that season three will be coming to an end, I'm going to do some more certificates and hopefully do what I can to make our season four even better because I'll know more stuff then. Love that. Speaking of certificates, I really want to spend this summer specifically doing like LinkedIn learning activities around AI because I think it is obviously a trending topic for good reason right now. And it feels like I am doing a disservice to the people I work with as a DEI practitioner to not have some general scope of what AI is because that is where our world is so quickly moving And other than that, I would say that I am constantly advocating for more conversations around accessibility, the disability communities in the DEI space. It really is something that frustrates me that I don't hear about it more. It's not prioritized in DEI initiatives. And so I plan to continue to be that advocate who is, when thinking about programming or 
future partnerships. Hey, are we thinking about accessibility? Hey, are we thinking about covering topics that are focused on the disability community, the neurodivergent communities? I want to be that voice as someone who is able-bodied, who is not neurodivergent. I want to be an ally to that community. Obviously, I've mentioned in previous episodes, I have a personal connection. My sister is someone with a physical disability. And so I just feel like I'm like, how am I doing DEI work? And this is a conversation that is hardly ever had. And the reality is, is that like a lot of people who I've met who do DEI work, they, when we talk about intersectionality, they cover several different identities, but at least to my knowledge, not a ton of them cover the neurodivergent, physical disability, invisible disability demographics. So I think that's a part of it, but I want to continue to push for that. So that that's something that I'm personally trying to develop in myself is being an advocate and an ally for those those areas. What about you, Darylise? Azaria and Zach, you both know this. Azaria, you were gracious enough to be interviewed for this project, but I'm currently in the midst of working on a project called On Being Biracial. It's another podcast initiative about the experiences of multiracial, multiethnic folks, however they identify, whoever they are from a wide swath of society, and really looking at a more nuanced representation of race and identity and bringing those stories to the forefront. And for me, that really feels like the culmination of a personal lifetime spent as a biracial person and the professional work that I do and the platform that I have to offer. So I would say that's the project that I'm most excited about. And then there's other things, but I'm always, always on that DEI journey, on that DEI path, writing, learning, educating, lecturing, coaching, and collaborating with other folks. I think the more collaborations that I engage in, just the richer I find this work. And so I'm looking forward to doing more of that. And so far, it's been it's been really fun. I, I, I very much love bringing other people's stories to the forefront. And I just want to do more and more of that in addition to sharing my own experience. But really, I feel like the more that I do this work, the more I feel it's incumbent upon me to amplify other people's voices. So if you're listening to this, definitely check out the On Being Biracial podcast. We've already launched a couple of episodes and there's going to be more to come. So that's that's a fun project I'm working on. And what are you all hoping listeners will do in the off season to implement some of what we've talked about during the season? I honestly am hoping that they revisit these episodes. I think that each episode had such a wealth of perspective and such a wealth of challenging ideas. And I think that it can be overwhelming at times. So I think I've even found myself listening to a few episodes and in the moment I'm on this high of, oh my gosh, I didn't know that. And I can't wait to start implementing that in my life. But then days pass and I I remember the, the gist of the episode, but I can't quite recall the specific quotes or points that stood out to me most. And so this podcast, I'm hoping people view it as not just a one-time listen. I hope you come back and listen to these episodes because it's it's one of those things where you can listen to the same episode three different times and have a different takeaway each time. And yeah, I, I think that there there's value in doing that. And then I honestly, again, oversimplified, but just work every day of your life in some fashion to be a better person. I mean, that's what it really comes down to is being a better person is ultimately resulting in being a better person to the people around us and the world that we're in. And that includes 
reading new materials, challenging your own personal beliefs, listening to a new podcast, following someone who has the exact opposite opinion or view. I will say personally, and it's a little annoying with social media and how the algorithms work, but I've been challenging myself and it is a huge challenge to listen to people who have some very problematic views politically and are so distinctly opposed from what I personally believe, but I want to understand where they're coming from. I want to challenge myself to find little areas where I'm like, okay, that is more than it's hate. It's just misunderstanding, right? But now because I do that, it's like on my timeline as though I, I love that, which is a little annoying. So, but yeah, just trying to be better people, whatever that looks like for you, it's oversimplified, but it really is a theme that was throughout all of our episodes. I'll go with, and this actually could end up being a slogan or tagline for a future season, dare least, but don't hate, educate. That is my message. For those who are listening, clearly they're already on that journey of, educating themselves, of learning these new topics and and just different things that they should do to be better in the DEI space and in workplace environments. But I say when you come across folks who clearly don't know what you know or might come off as being ignorant, educate them. Share with them an episode that you think would make a lot of sense for them to listen to. Even follow up, have a conversation. Hopefully they took your advice and, and listened. But try to spread the knowledge, get more information, more good information out to folks who need to hear it. And I think that would be an amazing thing if if every listener decided to share an episode that they thought would resonate for somebody. That's what I hope folks take away with and and go and do. Let us know how it goes. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah, so if you're re-listening to episodes, as Azaria suggests, let us know which episodes, as Zach suggests, feel free to share those episodes with others. Let us know which episodes you're sharing. Please let us know what content you want to see more of for next season. We'd love to hear your listener thoughts and questions. So please write us, call in. And for those who have written in and called in all season, we've been giving out a free copy of the book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity during every Q&A episode. So Azaria, do you want to announce the last winner for this season? Yes, absolutely. I can't believe this will be the last time I'm announcing a winner on this podcast. But congratulations to Marie Dukes, who is a newsletter subscriber. Awesome. Congrats, Marie. And thank you so much to everyone who subscribes to the newsletter and calls and writes us with questions. And make sure you're following us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn, as we'll be answering some of your questions there too, even in the off season. Thank you so much for joining us today and for listening in more than 50 countries around the world. And if you want to contact today's expert, Drew Almond, email drew.almond at vtecinc.org. And we'll also put that info in the show notes. And while you're checking out our show notes, be sure to click the link for demystifyingdiversitypodcast.com to subscribe to our newsletter and learn about our DEI trainings, workshops, coaching, consulting, and other DEI services.
Yeah, absolutely. You want to sign up now because you'll want those announcements when we relaunch again in the future. Also connect with us on social. We've been engaging a lot this season. We're going to engage in the off season, connect with Sedwick and with us, get involved, get your employer involved, have them listen to past episodes. If you're an employer, hopefully this season has supported you in creating a more inclusive workplace culture. And to Azaria's point, keep coming back, keep coming back because the work never ends. And I think the content in a lot of ways will be evergreen. Every episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by Darylise Lines. With the invaluable assistance of co-collaborator and marketing manager, Zach James, with co-producer, coordination consultant, and the assistant director of Sedwick, Azaria Keys, with assistant producer and editor, Paul Kondo, production and development assistant, Stuart Kreintz, and content editor and creative collaborator, Sunny Taylor. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by Darylise Lyons in collaboration with Raymond Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. Thank you again to Drew Almond, to all the experts from the entire season, to everyone who agreed to be interviewed for this. Thank you, Zach and Azaria. And of course, thank you to those listening. This was a really great episode and a really great season. We hope you have a wonderful few months and we're very grateful for your support. If you haven't heard the episodes from the prior two seasons, we hope you'll go back and listen to some of those in the off season and that you practice DEIAB in your workplaces. I am so looking forward to next season. I hope all of you are as well. Be sure to keep in touch and let's all keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.